basically I was looking for the most affordable markets. And I, this is what I still do, even with short-term rentals, where the cash flow is the high, where the rent rates are the highest. So there's some sort of inconsistency in the market that's causing rent to be so much higher than the, the purchase price. And so that allows me to have very little capital into these properties and obviously get the, the highest amount of cash flow. This is the Multifamily Journey Podcast Show 43. You're listening to the Multifamily Journey Podcast. In this show, you'll hear industry experts share tips of success and failure from their real estate investing journeys. You'll get a transparent look behind the curtain while you learn to fulfill the lifestyle you want to live and achieve your wealth goals. Get ready for the journey to financial freedom through investing in multifamily real estate. Here's your host, Blake Daly. Hey, what's up, everybody? Welcome back to the Multifamily Journey Podcast. This is your host, Blake Daly, and we got a good show today about pivots, about changing strategies, and about all the while moving up and to the right. And I'll just preface it. I'm sorry if I sound a little nasally on this episode, going through some sinuses stuff, just had a surgery not long ago, and <laughs> I'm sniffling a lot today and feeling it in my nose. But today we got a great guest. His name is Kirby Atwell. He's got the Living Off Rentals podcast and the website. You can check that out. And he has a really cool strategy. Started out as an officer in the Army. And then once he got out, started this flipping business, was making a lot of money, made millions of dollars flipping. But he found through that it was more of a business and his wealth was not growing. So from that point, he pivoted to building his rental portfolio, was doing burrs and putting veterans, homeless veterans in these with a government-backed program, building up his portfolio there, making a lot of cash flow. And then he moved and then dealt with all the problems of dealing with a portfolio from a distance got a little bit more inefficient, and he wanted the lifestyle. He didn't want to have to spend all his time managing these tenants. So he built up his lifestyle and built his business around his lifestyle and not the other way around. It's a really powerful way. And he did that by pivoting to short-term rentals. And we talked about short-term rentals on the show. As you know, I'm doing three commercial Airbnb projects right now. So they're all 14 to 18 unit motels that we're converting to eight to 18. And then the ones I'm doing with my partner are 14 to 18. So there's four of them right now. They're commercial properties and we're doing big rehabs in different cities uh, all across the country, Panama city, Fort Walton and Lake Tahoe. And that takes a lot, you know, it's building a whole system, building a whole team, uh, building a whole company around that adventure stays our new company. So a lot goes into that, but Kirby went from 26 uh, long-term rentals into 10 short-term rentals. And now is able to achieve that same, if not greater level of cash flow, but with a lot less work. So with less properties, you have less maintenance, less ongoing issues. So really the show is a lot of good tips about how to build your business around your lifestyle. And he gets rehab tips, managing uh, tips, his, uh, systems for his tips to manage or tips for his systems that manages his short-term rentals. Got a little tongue time there, but really great show. And just want to say before we get into it, if you'd like this, because Kirby Gray gave some great content, like this, share it with somebody. Maybe somebody else needs to make that pivot or they're not as focused on their lifestyle as they need to be because a lot of people get into real estate investing to focus on the lifestyle, but then lose that at some point. So if you know somebody like that, or maybe if that's you, like this, share it, get this in people's hands because it's really good content. And with that, Let's get in the show. All right, Kirby, welcome to the Multifamily Journey Podcast. It's awesome to have you. It is great to be here, brother. 
Oh, thanks. I was on uh, your podcast a couple of weeks ago. We dug into the Burr B&B stuff, and it's good to have you on now and hear about your story and some more of kind of that area as we'll get into. So I'm excited about it because this is uh, news to me. But um, before we get into all that, why don't you tell people a little bit about your background before real estate, and then we'll work into you know how you got into it. Yeah, absolutely. Um, if people want to hear Blake's story, it's, uh, you know, you can check that out. Uh, just aired yesterday, actually, on the Living Off Rentals podcast. So um, awesome, awesome episode. Yeah, that guy you interviewed, to. he did a pretty good job, you know? <laughs> I know. It made the show. Yeah. That episode alone. Yeah. Uh, it was episode number 75, too. So uh, Big milestone. I think this yeah. is like, I'm still in the 40s. I got to catch up. Maybe I'll start doing two a week. <laughs> To get you. <laughs> I can hardly nice. do week. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Getting back to your question though. Yeah. Getting, um, yeah, so, getting back to track. Uh, yeah. So I, I, Growing, so I, I grew up in the south suburbs of Chicago, and um, I like to You're say, a Bears I, fan, right? That's right. I thought we asked that Bears. last time. Yes, love it. <laughs> we got a yeah the the the, the, Ohio, the Ohio State quarterback now, so I'm hoping yeah gives us the, the, They're threatening to be the Arlington Height Bears, though, if the city of Chicago doesn't treat them nice. So oh, we'll see how that all plays out. Soldier Field. Yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, I, I mean, growing up, I had sort of a, a, a mini rich dad, poor dad experience where um, I got to see kind of the, the polarized difference between um, my dad, who, you know, I, I had excellent parents and my, my dad had the secure job. You know, he worked for uh, he was a director of a park district. So he worked for a city running all the sports and um and parks programs. And my mom was an independent insurance broker. So she uh, basically ate what she killed. You know, she ran her own company selling or, you know, writing insurance for small businesses. Um, and she grew that over time and it gave her a lot of flexibility. And so I was always kind of drawn toward that type of business where it was like, so you was know, your upbringing you, like a rich mom, poor dad scenario? <laughs> <'Cause that would've laughs> I don't think my dad would like that too much. Uh, cause <laughs> yeah. he was actually probably the, the breadwinner. Um, it, it most of the but time it seemed like the entrepreneurial side of it seemed like what you put in is what you get out. That's right. Out. Yeah, that's right. Um, so, but there's pros and cons to each obviously, and, and everyone's geared or wired differently, but I was just always attracted to that model of the harder you work, the more money you're going to make. And so I knew I was going to be an entrepreneur, but I wanted to serve in the military. So my dad uh, said, you should check out West Point if you're going to serve in the military. Anyway, it's it's better to be an officer. They don't do much. Um, they just <laughs> tell people what to do. So, yeah. uh, And so I uh, applied for West Point. I went on a visit there and went to the admissions office. He, he pulls up my file and he's like, no, you are not in. He's like, maybe try again next year, but there's no way you're getting in here with your grades. Uh, and so then I went from there to the football coach's office and he's like, yep, you're in. And I was like, wait a second. Uh, uh, yeah, us football players get the, get the loophole going into that's the, right. Yeah. yeah a- athletes in general. I mean, so he's like yeah. the, the catch is you got to go to prep school in New Jersey for a year and, uh, and play football there. And then you could come up here. And so I did that. And then I got cut as soon as I showed up to West Point. But Hey, I never actually, you're yeah, exactly. Exactly. Everyone's basically on a scholarship there. So yep. all you need to do is get through the door and, um, they cut the team down in terms of size by quite a bit. And so I was one of the ones that got cut. So um, anyways, uh, fast forward, graduated in 05 from West Point and got stationed in El Paso. And I picked up Rich Dad, Poor Dad. And 
read the book and I was just it like totally resonant. I was like, I'm going to do this the rest of my life. Like, I mean, it was like a decision was made and this was like, I mean, this, that's 15 years ago now. And it, I mean, I've been just as passionate about investing in real estate ever since. So I started buying a few rental properties while I was in the army um, and then got out and I jumped straight into flipping properties. And uh, you know, the, I, I didn't qualify for the conventional financing anymore. So I just assumed that flipping was the thing that I needed to do. And, uh, we started, I partnered with two friends from high school and we started flipping properties all around the Chicago area. And we flipped about 70 properties from 2011 to 2016. And at that time, um, I, I basically hit pause and, and evaluated where we were and, I, I realized I, I had no financial gain from from the from when we started to to where we were in 2016. Um, we had made millions, um, literally, but every month our expenses just got higher and higher. You know, our marketing went from no budget to twenty thousand dollars a month, and we had a staff of thirteen people, and we had you know all these properties in process. And so we're managing so much more. And so there's more delays and the sort of cost of capital was higher. We're doing higher end homes. So it all just accumulated. The expenses just kept up with all the pro or with all the revenue. And the bottom line number was always the same, no matter what we did. So uh, we started with one property and we're like, all right, we got to do multiple properties. And we're like, we got to do high end properties and all these strategies. And it, it never accumulated to building wealth, which is why I got into real estate. And so that's in 2016. That's when I, I said, this is crazy. I'm not going to do this treadmill for the rest of my life. I got to get into rentals, which is why I started getting into real estate in the first place. It was financial freedom. I wanted the cash flow. I never really wanted to flip. It just seemed like that was the thing to do. That was what everyone was talking about. So um, so I totally switched. My partners bought me out of that that company and I started Green Bet Homes, uh, which is my current company. And I initially started by buying the birth strategy. I was buying properties that were really beat up. I was rehabbing them, renting them out, refinancing them. And then I'd rent them to homeless veterans through this FASH voucher program. So the, the VA will give veterans a voucher that pays for their, their house, similar to uh, a Section 8 voucher. And I love this program. I found out about it and I was like, this is all I got to, I got to figure this out. So I just dove into it deep. I figured out who ran the program, went and talked to them, um, and built my business around it. And for about three years, that's what I did. I, I just bought rehabbed and rented, uh, properties to homeless vets. And it was the cash flow was really good because in order to incentivize landlords to rent to homeless veterans, they pay above market average or above market, uh, rent rates. And so, you know, I could find some properties that were pretty affordable, build in equity, and then get some cash flow. And, you know, it's it's much more management intensive, but I was able to, I think, avoid some of the pitfalls because I was a veteran myself. I kind of built rapport and it was very hands-on. I mean, I knew all my tenants. I'd check in on them on a quarterly basis. They had a caseworker at the VA that was helping them work out of homelessness. And so, um, so it was a great model for a while, but then my wife and I moved to Northwest Indiana where the rent rates are about a third of what they were in the Chicago area. And there's just not nearly as many homeless veterans. Um, so I had to switch the model and that's when I 
switched into um, short-term rentals about uh, three years ago or two, two to three years ago now. So, so Man, that's what, what I've been a, doing ever since. What a cool story. Lot, lots of break. Yeah. <laughs> started with the, the rich dad, poor dad, got into flipping, which you know sounds good at the beginning. But like you were saying, if the whole goal is to build financial freedom and build your wealth over time, flipping is just building a business and you're earning a lot of income, being taxed really high, and you have all these high expenses exactly. going. So it's really kind of chasing the hamster wheel unless you know how to really you know, take what you're making from that and divert it to passive income, use your active income to make more passive income. And ultimately, you had to get out of that business to get into the more the more passive game. But through that, you built up your rehab experience and got to into the burst strategy, which is which is probably my favorite strategy in real estate because you get the velocity of money and you get the efficiency of using the same capital. Like you, I'm sure you probably use the same chunk to do multiple of those. Um, so that's cool. I guess doing those those early properties and and building up your rehab experience. Um, what was it about that VASH program and doing the birth strategy that made that a good fit to hold those long-term and to put those tenants in them? Yeah. Good question. So when I, um, when I first found out about the VASH program, I basically researched. So the way it works is the, the housing authority partners with the VA and, and they assign a rent rate for each zip code. So, uh, at least that's way in, in, uh, Cook County around Chicago. So I basically researched where's the most affordable market to the highest rent rate that they offer for these vouchers. And so price to rent ratio. Yeah, exactly. So, so I, um, targeted three different communities that were near each other in the South suburbs where the rent rate was really high, but they're really affordable markets. Um, and you know, I, the, the intent, I, I was very simplistic when it, when I started, cause I was like, I am, done with all the overhead, trying to be, you know, com- do things that are complex, like high-end stuff. I just want a very basic business, like low overhead, something that I can wrap my head around real easy. It's very simple to follow. And so I, I spreadsheeted out and I was like, if I can burr 24 properties, do one property a month for two years, and I can build in $40,000 of equity in each one, and at the end of the rehab, it pays me $500 of, of cash flow after all my expenses and set-asides. Then at the end of that, I will have a million-dollar net worth and I'll have $12,000 of income for the rest of my life, basically. Um, so I put my head down and basically did that. You know, I, I just you know, started that, yeah, out properties. at the goal, look at where you wanted to get and just work backwards. Exactly. Exactly. So I was like, you know, very simple, but, you know, uh, you just got to put in the work. And so started doing it. I was doing bandit sign marketing really heavily and, um, and it worked really well. Um, and it, but it was, again, as I scaled and started to add more properties, it was very management intensive. Um, and then once we moved, it was even more so because I was much further away then. So, and then property outsourcing property management for voucher tenants like that, especially homeless veterans with other issues that caused them to become homeless it was, uh, it, it just, it was very inconsistent cash flow because there was a lot of issues that could pop up. And so I just, after a while, I was like, this, this is not the model that I want. And the, uh, the properties had appreciated quite a bit. So I was like, you know, I could sell these and f- really focus on less short-term rentals and kind of switch strategies. And so that's, that's why I decided to yeah, on. I like that a lot. And one thing I wanted to break out in there is something I don't think we've talked about on the show yet. Price to rent ratio. 
So taking the price of the home compared to what it would rent, can you can you break that down for the listeners and then why that fit your strategy to go buy these buy and hold rentals in this area? Yeah, I, I'm a super conservative investor and it's probably hurt me in the last few years because of so much appreciation. You know, had I been a lot more aggressive and not cared about this ratio so much, I, I would have um, benefited from from the appreciation a lot more. But basically, I, I was looking for the most affordable markets, and I, this is what I still do, even with short term rentals, where the cash flow is the high, where the rent rates are the highest. So, you know, there's some sort of inconsistency in the market that's causing rent to be so much higher than the the purchase price, and so that allows me to have very little capital into these properties. Um, and, you know, obviously get the the highest amount of cash flow. But again, like everybody's different and everybody has different uh, risk tolerance it, with the way money is now, you know, there's a strong argument that, you know, you could buy in more expensive markets and still be okay. But I just like, especially knowing like being in short-term rentals that I could always convert my properties back to long-term rentals and they would perform mm-hmm. really well as long-term rentals as well. Yeah. Not, not nearly as good. And that's as what I love about that strategy too, right? If you're buying on the fundamentals of real estate, if you really look at the fundamentals and you're buying at the right price, you can implement the short-term rental strategy and get the higher cash flow and do the burst strategy and get all those other benefits and still underwrite your property to say, okay, worst case scenario, you know, if my local area goes through a, um, a rezoning or changes the short-term rental laws, they tax it differently, whatever, I can go back to a long-term rental and still cash flow, still be fine and still make money and still have that financial freedom. Might impact the amount of money I make, but how I, how much I'm involved in that property, my time might actually go down. So, you know, it's it's a shift. And I look at all my short-term rentals the same way. And I don't think I don't think that's necessary in every single area because like if you're buying a five bedroom house in like the mountains, you're probably not going to be able to long-term rent that in cash flow very well, if at all. But you can rent it out for a thousand dollars a night and kill it. So Really, in like the areas that that you buy and then I buy, I think it's important. And if people are looking to get short short term rentals, it's the most affordable, easiest place to get is just like really like middle America. Like I'm in, I'm close to the coast, but I'm not coastal at all. I'm like 30 minutes away, and you're in Northwest Indiana, very far away from the coast. So um, it's a thir- we call it the third coast, unlike Michigan. Okay, like Michigan, the third yeah. coast. I like it. So <laughs> you're uh, you've got enough amenities around you, I guess, just like in here. And then we also have, um, you know, economic drivers are close enough to Chicago. We've got military bases here, you know, the different economic drivers that bring people to the area on top of vacationers. Those are the markets that really do the best from a price to rent, you know, price to nightly rent ratio, whatever you can break it out by 30 days. So those are areas to, to really look into. I love that you kind of worked backwards and took that long-term strategy and used those fundamentals just like I did and said, Hey, here's my long-term rent. Let's see what it can do short-term. And you actually get more cash flow for less property. So I like that a lot. Yeah, um, one, one thing I, I would just add to that too, um, you know, is that you can, it, it allows you to diversify too. So at, if you start with this strategy of like saying, okay, let's only buy properties that that will work as long-term rentals as well. And you build up a base of those, then you can go out and buy that mountain house that has way higher cash flow on it, a little bit more risky, knowing that if everything craps out tomorrow, we have another COVID or Airbnb just went away or whatever, and you had to convert them all back to long-term. Yeah. Those, those short or the, 
the the more affordable ones will still cash flow. They'll they'll pay for that luxury one until you can get it back on as a short-term rental or yeah. sell it or whatever. So, and that's um, why I think it's another great reason to, to start out, maybe not like the first property or whatever, but to have like early on in your portfolio to have short-term rentals, because just like you're saying, you can produce more cash flow. Um, and if you have that on top of the equity, if you're burning, take that and put it into new properties. So if you want to have a couple short-term rentals and take that cash flow and buy long-term rentals, I mean, what a great strategy because you're diversifying while still building your cash flow and you know your passive income uh, really yeah. evenly. So that's a that's a really good idea. I think every Carl talked about that on the Bigger Pockets podcast of what she was doing, and that's like what I was doing at the same time. But she put words to what I was like thinking and doing, and I was like, oh, that's why I was doing it, you know? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's good stuff. And uh, before we transition into into more of that kind of stuff, I wanted to um, ask. I, I kind of picked out something you were talking about. Why you decided, you know, once you moved to Indiana and your management got a little bit more intensive, because I was thinking, you know, you have nicely renovated properties. You bird them, you know, did all the capex and you know put tenants in them into a fresh new place. But then with the management issues, you know, your expenses were um, probably a little bit higher, and then the income less steady. So. What was it about that scenario, just from like a you know a G whiz landlord perspective, about why that portfolio started underperforming and why you decided to make that pivot? Yeah, so I, I mean, it's I think it's a combination of things, but it it's when I first started the the model, I knew that it was going to be very management intensive. I knew that yeah. you know the, is that just because of like the demographic of of the renters? You know, maybe like vets that have PTSD or just need more. Things I don't know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, there's there's a reason that they became homeless, and and the yeah. only way you qualify for a voucher is literally you you cannot have an address. You're either sleeping on the street, you're sleeping on a friend's couch, you're you know, and and you're a veteran. Um, and so so there's there's issues there, underlying issues uh, that you know that need to be addressed. Um, so I knew that that there was going to be some some struggles that they're going through. Um, but that's kind of what drew me to it too. I was like, you know, I, I feel like I, I can help here and, and provide some, some nice housing. And, and a lot of them moved in and said, this is the nicest place I've ever seen. Um, you know, and, and because we really rehabbed them nicely. Um, but once we moved to Indiana, it was very difficult to, to get over there as often as I needed to be because I was very hands-on. Um, and so it just, you know, it, it kind of, kind of fell apart, you know, in terms of once I got the the professional manager in place, they just did not have the rapport. They were not tending to things. I was extremely proactive. And I think that's the key for a good property manager, or if you're going to manage it yourself, the key is just to be proactive, do, you know, lots of walkthroughs, know your tenants, know what to expect, you know, prevent issues before they pop up. And, and that wasn't happening as much. And so I, as I, I think as most investors kind of mature or start to um, get more experience, it becomes a lot more about lifestyle too than just the yes. the gross numbers. So I was like, you know, do, do I want to drive back over there and manage twenty six different properties myself and have all the issues that keep coming up, or do I want to sell those to somebody else who can manage the property? You know the, the the homeless vets can stay in them. Somebody else can manage them better as a, a local owner or whatever, whoever they are. And then I can just purely focus on these, which are right down the street. Um, so that was a big, uh, big decision as well. 
Yeah, that's a that's a, a really good point. Like about the the contrast be, between self managing and then handing off your portfolio to a property manager. So as a self manager, you're gonna you're gonna know your tenants. You're gonna be more intimately um, aware of all the issues that go into managing your portfolio, and then. When you hand that over to property management, you really kind of lose some control. So it's really important to pick the right property manager. You know, some in some cases when you're dealing with high um, needy tenants or you know high problem tenants, it's just there's really no good way to hold on to that long term. And especially what you just said, it's about lifestyle investing. Like that's why I got into this. That's why you got into it. That's why a lot of people get into real estate investing because you can generate passive income and and have that lifestyle to spend time with your family or go travel more and not have to, you know, show up to work every single day to make a paycheck. They just, they come in the mailbox or get direct deposited or whatever. <laughs> if you're spending all your time dealing with pain in the butt tenants, it's hard to justify that, you know, you're doing this for the lifestyle if you're not able to live the lifestyle because all the stuff you have to do. Um, so with that, like, is that experience what led you to pivot? It sounds like there's a lot of different things, you know, the move, the, the portfolio you had, but when you got into Indiana, what was the uh, you know go Hoosiers by the way? <laughs> yeah, that's right. Indiana resident. What was uh, what was that big push to get you into short term rentals? And you know, can you can you break down what it is about your market that makes short term rentals stick out for you as well? Yeah. So I think um, as an investor, you really have to analyze what what your ultimate goal is with it's with so getting important. into real estate. Like I, I initially didn't do this, and for five years I flipped properties when I realized after five years of doing it, like I wanted financial freedom. This isn't getting me closer to financial freedom. So, um, for me, it's once I got into rentals, I realized that I don't want, like, I want to use rentals to get financially free as soon as possible. I want to live off, off rental property. I don't want to, to buy rentals just to stick into like my retirement and work for 30 years. Cause there's a lot of people who love their job. They plan to work, but they know owning, some passive, you know, property investments is, is really smart from a tax perspective and investment perspective. So they'll invest like in turnkey properties at half percent or 1% rule or whatever. And those are fine for them. You know, they'll appreciate slowly over time. It's decent cash flow. It's okay. But most likely that's not going to provide enough for you to leave your job. But I wanted to leave my job. So I was looking for another um, investment in, in rental properties, some other strategy that provided the type of, of uh, cash flow that I was seeing over in, with the, the VASH uh, voucher type property. So once I got over here, I, I heard about Airbnb a lot, obviously, and I knew there was a lot of potential. And so we were buying a house for us that was like all original, like 1970s, like needed to be gutted. And uh, it was right on the beach. And, um, you know, it had a, a, a separate walkout basement. And so basically I, you know, talked to my wife and said, let's just turn this into a separate apartment and try it. And so we spent $30,000 extra, made it a separate one bedroom apartment. And we thought this is a house hack. This is the one you're living in. This I was living there. We, we uh, moved then to the the farm where we're at now, but, and and it was because this worked out so well there. Uh, We wanted to scale it, but uh, but yeah, we turned it into a separate apartment and we thought, you know, we're adding that value into the house anyway, by, by finishing the basement and, and adding that apartment. So if it doesn't work out, we're not out anything and it just blew up. I mean, people just started renting like crazy. Um, and it, uh, it worked really well. So, and it paid basically three quarters of our mortgage just in three months that we rented it in the summer <laughs> and we weren't even optimizing pricing. 
And so I was like worth a mortgage in one summer. That's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. So I was like, if this works this well in our basement, this, we got to scale this. So that's when I went out and started buying some houses in the area. Yeah. I love it. And it's so, it's so eerily similar, similar to my story too, because my wife and I did the same thing. We were living in the house and we rented out the attached space that was, you know, it used to be a garage, but it was a converted. They had a kitchen and a bedroom and a full bathroom, private access. And that thing just brought in money. Like we still have never paid a mortgage payment on that house. <laughs> it's awesome. It's always been positive cash flow and it's great. And that was a short-term rental. And then we did the same thing. I was like, hey, we, we saw another house. It was like six blocks away. It was the same setup, but it was detached. I was like, let's go buy this one and do the same thing, but around the main house and <laughs> get even better. I mean, that's our, our best producing single property. So I love it. Um, and when you were implementing this strategy, were you continuing to buy distressed properties and fix them up and then turn them into to short-term rentals, the kind of the Burby and B strategy? Yeah, exactly. And, and sorry, I think it's bath time for my kids. So you're probably going to hear them screaming in the bath background, but, uh, you know, <laughs> I, I just got to deal with it. my office is right next so, door. That's uh, the screams of all the past minutes that you left in Illinois. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. It's a reminder. Um, yeah, exactly. I, so I adopted the same strategy because I was like, I, you know, I, I love rehabbing and turning something that's crappy into a beautiful house. And I love building in that equity and knowing that it's there. Um, so once you, just, yeah, once you get on that boat, you just can't jump off. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's in my opinion, one of the easiest ways to make 30, 40, $50,000 that just, you know, goes on your balance sheet on your net worth statement. Um, so, uh, so yeah, I was, I was targeting off market, really distressed properties and, and that's how I started. Um, and again, the first one I was like, I don't know how to run the numbers. I know it works in our house, but I'm going to just, find the, the cheapest property I possibly can. Um, and if it, and analyze it as a long-term rental and if it works really well as a long-term rental, I'll try it as a short-term. And if it doesn't work out, then I'll just convert it back. And I did that on the first one, bought it for 39,000 bucks, um, put about 55 into it. And it was worth about 125 afterwards. And as a long-term rental, it would have rented for anywhere from 950 to 1100 bucks. Um, and taxes are, like a thousand dollars a year. It's like super cheap here. So, you know, it, it works well as a, as a long-term rental, but, um, as a short-term rental, I started renting it and it makes five grand in the summer. And in the winter, it's about 1500 to two grand. Um, so significantly better, uh, numbers on a, on a short-term rental. Yeah. And I love, what I love most about that is how you had like that inkling of the idea and then leapt and make it happen because you built out your worst case scenario and your worst case scenario was still cash flowing a couple hundred bucks on that property because you know what it would do as a long-term rental. So you had only upside, you know, maybe the cost of furnishing, which if you bought it on Facebook marketplace or something, or from like TJ Maxx, you'd probably sell it for, for more, you know, do some, some couch flipping and make some money that way. If the worst case scenario came to be, but what you find out a lot of times is that your your cash flow from the from the short term rentals are you know anywhere from two to minor about three to four up to five times you know your long term rental revenue and just by um, taking that leap I mean it's it's blossomed into now I mean how many of these are do you have now and now we we have ten uh, listings total um, so and, and my goal and that was another thing is that like what really attracted me is like if I can make a thousand bucks per property now. You know, I need it takes less properties to manage, yeah, right? Because exactly. you have more Eight, cash. Nine, That's yeah, what I, and you're, that was like the big light bulbs for me too. I'm glad you brought that up because I was like, yeah. when I saw what the one property was bringing in, we had our our house and then the the other 
uh, property with the detached unit. And just from the cash flow from those, I was like, wow, I don't need, you know, three or four single family homes. I need one of these. And then I got, I need seven more of these to be, or, you know, at that point, it was like three more of these to be financially free, 15 or 20 more single family homes. So it, you know, it takes the amount that you need to go purchase, the amount of money you need to go raise, the amount of projects you need to go do in the end, the amount of properties and they have to deal with the maintenance and all that kind of stuff. So it really lessens your load over time. It's powerful for a lot of different reasons. Yeah. And it's addicting too. Like we're the house that we're living in now, this, this farmhouse, we bought a farmhouse on 45 acres we got rehabbed it and my wife's a, a great designer she designed the whole thing but now like we listed this just to see if we could you know we, we listed it like 400 a night during the week and then 500 on the weekends and higher on the holidays and we're like there's no way in, in valparaiso indiana like this is going to rent for this much but if somebody wants to rent it we'll we'll leave and <laughs> you go pay a, stay in one of your yeah, yeah. In hotel for 95 bucks a night yeah, yeah. Rent it well up. we got family in the area so so now we it's been booking up and I, you know i'm like let's just leave it open I, let's book it as much as my wife's like blocked off lots of dates so it's just like one weekend a month but that one weekend they come in pay 1800 bucks which is like our whole mortgage for the place and it, it pays for, and we're going to be out of town anyway, visiting a brother or my brother or, or parents or whatever. So it just, uh, it's like, it's crazy how, what, what you can do once you start getting into the space. Yeah. I love it. And I wanted to talk too about, you know, you talk about doing these gut rehabs and flipping 70 homes and all these burrs. Um, what are some rehab tips that you've learned over the, over the years that helped you get, you know, your max ARV, your after repair value, you know, what really helps you maximize that rehab? Yeah. I I get asked a lot what, what you should put into rehabs. And one thing that I I always recommend for new, new investors is like everything is always dictated off the comp. So you have to think about what you're trying to do because people are like, Oh, I've got this. How should I put in new windows or should I put in, um, quartz countertops or should I do the the cheap countertops? And I'm like, you should do exactly what, are you planning to sell it? And they're like, yeah, I'm going to sell it or I'm going to rent it. So if you're going to sell it, look ex- like the comps that you think you're going to sell it for, do they all have brand new windows? If they do, then you better put in windows. Do they all have quartz countertops? Then put in quartz countertops. If they don't, none of them do, or the majority don't, Match the then market, you're baby. wasting, yeah, you're wasting your money to put that in. And the same thing yeah. for rental, same thing for Airbnbs. Like, you know, don't do like Airbnb is a lot of it's like furnishings. You know, that's, that's yeah, when I mean, you really you make do the a simple rehab. Yeah. Do quartz countertops and just furnish it really nice. Get a professional designer to do it for like three or four, maybe five grand. And then you've got exactly. really good there. But yeah, I love what you're saying about the, uh, the, the single family rehabs, flips, whatever. And you want to really match the market. If you're spending, yeah. you know, if you're doing a rehab at the top of the market, you might get a little bit more, but you're it's not going to be much more than the next highest comp, if yeah. if at all, right? Exactly. Because you're based off of the the sales of the homes around you. So it's really important when you're looking at single families. You know, when you're commercial property, it's a whole whole different you know kit and caboodle there because it's all gen, you know your value is generated by the income that your property generates. You're buying an income stream. In single family, it's all based off comps. And I wanted to ask too, are there kind of uh, home issues to avoid? Are there things maybe like foundations or bad roofs that you just see on a property and you back away from? Like what should kind of newer investors maybe steer clear from if the house yeah. has, has these kind of issues? Yeah, great, great question. That was the other thing I was going to mention too is, is 
uh, number one thing I learned rehabbing around Chicago is that the, one of the biggest things I look for is the age of the property. Like the age dictates a lot. And so when I was doing rentals, I would always uh, target something built 1965 or newer uh, because that's kind of when they switched over from galvanized to, to copper and PVC. And, and you started seeing more updated uh, mechanicals in the in the properties. And so what that allows you to do is do surface level rehabs, which probably, it, I mean, it exponentially decreases your cost of the rehab. Yeah. So it's probably Plumbing a third. Electrical and foundational yeah. stuff can all be very, As very soon expensive. as you open it up the walls. to like the value of the house, really. Yeah, exactly. You don't, you don't get anything else for it, but as soon as you open up the walls, now you got to update all the, all the mechanicals. You got to insulate it up to today's standard. Then you have to redrywall it. Then you have to paint it. And now you get to start on the rehab that you could have done had you just bought a house that didn't need to have the walls open. You could just do a surface level. So it's like three times, four times as much. So I always like the newer house and, you know, you're not going to have as many foundation issues and all those things that come with a, a, a much older house as well. So <laughs> yeah, I've had so many headaches off of rehabbing old houses, you know, done a foundation that added like $20,000 to the yeah. rehab and replacing um, cast iron piping, you know, that stuff that rusts from the inside out. And yeah. I, can't, I couldn't figure out why the, the plumbing kept backing up in the bathrooms and yep, that cast iron had rusted through and yeah, newer properties definitely avoid a lot of issues. The plumbing's newer down here in Florida, like in the fifties and sixties, they use cloth wiring. Oh yeah. And like knob and tube fuse or the little fuses that are like circles that you get like screw in and out. It's like a little <laughs> light bulb. Like, yeah. man, that is, that's, that's fire hazards all around. Literally they wrap their, wa their <laughs> wiring with like wool cloth and it's like, yeah. that's <laughs> one spark, you know, one short fuse and your whole house is going up. So yeah, definitely exactly. avoid those things. <laughs> yeah. And, and in the North too, one other thing that I always uh, would, would advise for rental properties is just avoiding basements in general. And I know some people say, Oh, you know, if you're, if you're selling a house, you want to have a basement because everybody loves to have a, a house, the basement because all the storage and extra room and all that stuff. But it, as a owner of the house or a, a owner of an investment, it adds so much cost because they always flood. There, it, it's There's always problems in the basement and, and it's just a lot more work. So if you can just eliminate that and be on a slab, which the majority of houses do have basements in the north. I know down there they don't have any basements, but, um, but it's just, I, you know, by doing that, it it saved me a lot of money. Yeah. That's a, that's a really good tip. Um, basements definitely have issues. I know growing up every like basement I was in, like I had a sump pump or something like that yeah. to get the water that came out when it rained, you know, they're like, Oh, go close the, the, you know, make sure all the windows in the basement are closed or will flood or they got cracks in them. A lot of, a lot of maintenance there. Yeah. Um, and what I, one thing I wanted to ask too is now that you have you know a mix of long term and short term rentals, and it sounds like you're self managing on the on the short term side. What are kind of your biggest takeaways that you've learned for managing your properties now because you've you know managed so many different asset classes and done flipping and all that? What are kind of your big takeaways for managing it all? Yeah. So again, like I I did this, I switched to this strategy um, and was super intentional about. You know, I, I probably am giving up some cash flow in uh, you know in exchange for for lifestyle. So I, I was all about just trying to maximize cash flow as much as I could, but also automating 
the whole process. So, um, so I'm self-managing, but that doesn't mean I'm doing a whole lot of the process. I've got a great team. Um, so I've got a, uh, a, a guest relations person who, who does everything for me. I mean, she, she works for me on an hourly basis and she, she responds to all the guest inquiries. She books all the bookings. She, um, is, uh, she lines up all the cleaners. Um, if there's any issues, she, she's the one that, you know, tracks them all, lets me know about them. And, um, and she's the first line of contact. So I can do stuff like this during the day or, or work on, um, other stuff. And I'm not, having to constantly be on Airbnb or worry that a cleaner is not going to show up or any of that stuff. So, um, so I think from a, a management, you know, it's, you can call it self-management, but it's more like in-house management. Like, so yeah. I'm not paying 20% or 30% to a manager. It's way less than that. But at the same time, I'm not doing any of the stuff that I don't want to do or need to do. So uh, I've got somebody handling all that like a manager but they come back to me and, and we check in a little bit more often than a manager probably, but, um, but they're handling the day to day for me. Yeah. I love that. We're, we're doing the same thing. I like how you kind of phrase that it's in-house management, not self-management. So we have our, uh, managers for each location of our new commercial Airbnb properties. And then we have our Airbnb concierges. So we have several of these that are VAs that answer all the, all the booking inquiries, and all the questions. They're all, like in the Philippines, but speak like perfect English and then just let the, nice. the property manager know if they need anything or, you know, if he, if he's needed to go on property to do anything, he's there most, mostly during the day in and out anyway. Mm -hmm. We're actually building him in an office in our Tahoe property. So he'll nice. actually be able to work from there. And what that does, like just what you're saying, allows me to step out and it's all about building systems for you to manage rather than, than do the things yourself. And the yeah. book who not how is something that really helped me with that. Like think who can help you do this or who can do this for you. You know, thinking about the people it takes to do things rather than asking yourself, how can I get this done? Ask yourself who can, who can do this. And that yeah. just helps a ton. Um, I wanted to ask you too, what's something you wish you would have known earlier with managing your own, <laughs> or, you know, doing all this? Uh, so, well, once, I mean, so I, there's probably a lot of people who do Airbnbs that listen to this or want to get into them. One thing was around pricing. So we, I, it, there's one mistake that cost me probably 1500 bucks that I learned early on, uh, or I wish I would have known before, before it cost me that. But basically we listed a property and Airbnb incentivizes you or asks you basically to give the first three bookings, uh, 20% off. And so, you know, I think it's smart to do to start getting some reviews and, and getting some bookings going on a, on a new listing. But what we didn't do, what I recommend to people now is you block off anything after the first two to three weeks, you know, and only open up the first two to three weeks. And so that way you can get bookings right away, because if people are getting 20% off, they're going to book right away. Yeah. And so we opened up the whole calendar offer 20% off. And this was in December. And so our pricing like wasn't July or something like exactly. a high, a our pricing rate. wasn't adjusted great for July already. So it was low already. Then they got a 20% discount on it and they booked like 10 days and it cost us like $1,500. We would have booked that out for sure in July because it's like yeah. our busiest month, Coming to but the yeah. they got a, a sweetheart deal. So, um, so, you know, that optimize, yeah. that's out like the little ninja tricks. Yeah. Uh, have you read this book? Optimize your being. Yeah, yeah. 
That's yeah, where he's I got actually, that tip from. Yeah. Yeah. He's, he's, he's coming on uh, my podcast here in, in the next couple of weeks here. Awesome. So. Hey, you'll have to, you'll have to connect me with him. Cause I've, yeah. I have written up in that book. So many things. It's like, yeah. there's like more pages that have highlights and like marks and stuff that don't. And that's what I read. Like, the, on my first property in you know two years ago now, what I read to really dive deep into it, we were doing self-management at that time, doing self-cleaning, all that stuff, and just in building all these systems and like use that book kind of as our as our manual. Um, but yeah, the, leave the first two weeks open with that 20% discount, two to three weeks, and then yeah. um, once they book, then open up the rest. So that's, yeah. Actually... Yeah. It's funny you say that because I forgot to do that on the first one, and they booked like it was only it was only one weekend in July, and we opened up at the end of at the end of June, so not a huge deal. Probably lost us like two or three hundred bucks, but they, yeah, they a good deal. They got one over on me <laughs> when yeah. you're building yeah. a bunch of these at once. You know, the the little details count. Yeah, and you don't have I don't think as much of a seasonality issue there, but man, when the the difference between getting bookings in January and July is huge here. Yeah. And I wanted to ask before we transition to the last section of the show here, uh, what does kind of overall your portfolio look to look, excuse me, what does your portfolio look like today? And then what are you focusing on the rest of 2021 to, you know, either maintain it or, or grow it? Yeah. Uh, so when, when I got into this strategy about three years ago in the short-term rental strategy, um, I had 26 long-term rentals that I had accumulated. Um, one of them was an 11 unit apartment. Uh, and, uh, when I decided this is the route I want to go, um, sold off all those except for one. And now I've accumulated 10, uh, short-term rental listings, um, and much slower pace in terms of like the, the properties I'm buying and, and renting, but I'm making about the same cash flow as I did on, on the 26 after it's all said and done. Um, you know, self-managing these and, and just the, the cash flow being substantially high. There's some that just perform exceptionally well. So, um, you know, I, I am really not a hyper growth type of person. Um, so I, I think lifestyle. exactly. It's, I, I think it's all about figuring out yourself. And that, that has been the biggest game changer for me. Cause initially I was like, everyone's telling me I got to flip and that's, it seems to be what successful people are doing. And I was paying attention to other people and not really looking internally and saying, what do I want? Like what's, what's, what drives me? And, you know, I would trade a, a private jet and being on the road for being on the farm here with my kids and driving an old pickup truck and, you know, not having to go to work. Like to me, that's the ultimate success and never have to get on a plane the rest of my life. Like I just, I love it. Um, so once I realized that and was stopped trying to, to live somebody else's life, then I could slow down my pace, really focus on high cash flowing, high performing properties that are quality properties that are easy to manage. And it affords me a lifestyle that I'm after. So I'll still add a property here and there, the opportune ones, but I'm not looking to add tons of properties to my portfolio because I, I just, I don't feel like I need to and I really want to. So yeah, so that's, uh, well, yeah. I love the answer. Yeah. It's all about, like you said, going back to your goals, knowing what you want, knowing what you want your lifestyle to look like. And you, if you have the properties in the cash flow to live that lifestyle and do what you want right now, then you don't necessarily need to go buy you know, two or three or 10 more properties, like just be, you know, reach being content and be content being there. So yeah, I really like that answer. And now Kirby, it's time to transition our last section of the show. It is the fortune five. 
All right. These are the five questions asked every week and starting off, what is the biggest thing that has contributed to your success? Uh, probably my, my wife, I would say, uh, <laughs> just marrying, right? I like that. Yeah. I, I mean, I just look at people who, who married the wrong person and how many problems in every aspect of that, their life that brings. And when you marry the right person, how much easier it makes everything. So, um, very fortunate to have married the, uh, the right person. I like that. She makes everything else happen. <laughs> yeah, good. exactly. And what is the biggest mistake that you've had so far that's turned, turned into a learning lesson? Um, there was a lot of mistakes on rehabs that were painful. I mean, I could go I through, I could go through contractor stories, uh, where it was just, I mean, one of the first rehabs that I did, it was actually, it was, it was my fourth, it was my fourth rehab total, um, back in 2012. Um, and it was a, a contractor I'd used several times, but it was the biggest house. All of a sudden we were getting into a big project. It was a two unit that we want or three unit that we want to convert back to a single family home in a higher end area. Cause that was what was going to sell the highest. And I think he underbid it a bit, um, got halfway through, he ran out of money and, uh, he was going super slow. And so finally we had like a come to Jesus meeting and I was like, you know, let's get back on track. Let's renegotiate on this. Like, let's get you uh, whatever resources you need. Like I will help you get them. Like, and so we agreed on a new price point. We agreed on what he was going to do. Like get the dry, like we're at a place where we needed to get drywall done. That was the next step. So he was like, all right, I've got a crew, a sub, you know, I'll sub this out, bring in a crew and get the drywall done. I need a, a draw to get started. And so I gave him, I think it was $20,000 more at the time. And the next day I showed up at the project and all his tools were gone. Uh, he was, it was done. Um, and as soon as I walked in and saw it empty, I was like, I am screwed. Um, so we went through this whole long meeting where this guy just lied to my face over and over. I give him 20 grand and he is out the door. And so then all the subcontractors, no shame. Yeah. Yeah. And so all the subcontractors that he was working with, like the flooring guy who had just done all the flooring, he comes to me, he's like, I need to get paid. And I'm like, already paid. I paid him for you. And I didn't, I didn't understand lien waivers at the time. So it ended up costing me probably about $70,000. Luckily the, um, this, this was when the hedge funds were getting hot and heavy. And so they came in and bought it above what I thought we could sell for on the market. Um, and it, it, you know, I did okay on the the project, but it was about, I would have made a, probably 70,000 more if everything had gone well with the, uh, the rehab. So it was a, it was a hard lesson learned. That's, That's one of those situations where I would have like, you know, I don't know if, if at that time you were collecting like the, the contractor's license and insurance numbers, but I would have tracked that guy down and just had a two by four <laughs> yeah. waiting on him. God, that makes me so yeah. mad. I'm, I'm in the middle of like dealing with all these contractors right now in the different um, different commercial projects in different cities, three different cities, three different commercial projects and like all the contractors. Oh man. Yeah. They've all painful. got their own issues. Yeah. <laughs> anyway. All right. Next question here. What is your favorite book you'd recommend to someone starting out? Um, I, I, you know, I've, I've obviously rich Dad poor dad's one that, that always comes up. Um, that's a great one to start with, but I, I'm in a, a lot more now. I think in the beginning you read a lot more tactical books on real estate investing now I'm into more like strategic books on like just business success in general. So I've read a couple of great ones recently. One of my all-time favorite books is Essentialism. Um, and so that author, Greg McC McCown, I believe is how you say it. Um, 
he just wrote Effortless, which is in his new book, which is awesome. I just read it twice um, and I recommend it to everyone. So that's a great book. Um, it's just all about doing, um, uh, what's the term he uses for it? it uh, it's residual work versus linear work. So residual work is work you do today that will pay you forever. Linear work is going to work, you know, punching the clock, getting paid for it. And then you got to start back over the next day. So stuff like, you know, real estate is residual work, stuff like this podcast, like this will pay off for a long time, like stuff that you can do that will, will pay off in the long term. Maybe it doesn't pay you as much up front, but, um, it's, it's all about, uh, that, that type of mindset. So it's, yeah, uh, I, I really like that. I like that term. I'm going to have to read that. It's called effortless effortless. Yep. I like that. That's a really good term. Um, Kirby, outside of uh, real estate and doing burrs, what do you like to do outside of that? Uh, We started gardening this year. (laughs) So uh, my wife and I have always... Back porch, it's like a big stand-up one. Oh, nice. Yeah. Yeah. I've seen ads for that on Facebook. A few vegetables in there. It actually came with the house. It was nothing in there. My wife, she's got the green thumb, so we've got kale and tomatoes and peppers and all that stuff now. Garlic. Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. That's that. So we, we've talked about it for years, finally moved out to this. Uh, so this you guys acreage. got the whole farm. Yeah. Yeah. We haven't like, I mean, it's not massive, but for us, for the first time, it's pretty substantial. We've been eating out of the garden for the last month and it'll last until, you know, September when it gets, or October when it gets, starts to get cold again. But, um, but yeah, it's been fun. It's been a, a fun little new hobby for, for me and it's, uh, you know, feeding the kids and it's, it's healthy. So I like it a lot. I like that. Yeah. I'm back home and, uh, where we're from in Indiana, not far from you. It's like two, maybe two and a half hours. Um, but my in-laws have like a, a full, probably like quarter acre garden and they've got probably five acres of land and back nice. in the back section. There's this huge garden. It's like the biggest personal garden. I know it's almost like it's own little farm. <laughs> And they eat with that. So like in our, our pantry in the house, we've got just a full drawer of, uh, you know, canned peas and fresh salsa and everything nice. regarding corn. So they bring it with them every time they come. Yeah. Love it. Yeah. Yeah. We're hoping to freeze a bunch. So it lasts us through the winter too. So it's yeah. great. Just living off the land. That's right. <laughs> Last question here, Kirby, where can people find out more about you and connect with you? Uh, so actually I, I, have been wanting to for about two years now, um, once, since I've got into the short-term rental space, create a, a program to help people with, with short-term rentals. Cause I, I talk to people all the time and I'm like, what's holding you back from doing this? Like, why are you still in long-term rentals or why are you, why have you been talking about getting into short-term rentals? And they're like, well, I don't know how to analyze the deal or I wouldn't know how to find a cleaner that I could trust. And I'm like, you just, you're giving up tens of thousands of dollars of cash flow because you don't know how to find it. Like these are, these are solvable issues here. Um, so I have spent an enormous amount of time designing a program that uh, I'm about to launch uh, in September that uh, will walk people through, take people who are totally dependent on their full-time job from no passive income to finding and setting up their first uh, like high cash flowing vacation rental. Um, and that way they can use that as a, as a model going forward and just stamp it out as many times as they want. Um, so I've got an informational webinar coming up on that, that goes over my entire process for buying and setting up short-term rentals. And so it's just livingoffrentals.com backslash webinar. 
So if you go there, um, yeah, we'll put that in the show notes too. Okay, cool. Yeah. So if you go there, I mean, it, the webinar is going to be live on August 9th, but if you, you go there after that, you can see the recording and you can get more information about it there. So awesome. It's coming up. That's exciting stuff. A whole, uh, course getting people on what we were just talking about that, that high cash flow lifestyle kind of business that you can make if, if you get into all this. So definitely check that out. And Kirby, thanks for coming on and sharing tonight, you know, sharing your story of, you know, all the lessons learned from the flipping to the long-term rentals and now what you're doing now. So this is really cool stuff, ton of value. So thanks for coming on and sharing some learning from, uh, from the mistakes too, which I always love hearing that's kind right. of both sides, you know, the, the goods and the bad. Cause that's what helps that's everybody right. kind of build up stronger as they go through, through their own stuff. That's right. Yeah. Being a West Pointer, we probably have more, more hard mistakes learned, you know, as an Air Force guy, you probably get it right the first time, but you know, um, <laughs> we just, we just send the, send somebody else before. <laughs> that's what we don't do. <laughs> but yeah, that's great being here. Thank you. I appreciate yeah. it. All right, Kirby. You have a great one. All right. And we're out of here. Hey, thanks for listening. If you like the show, if you found value in it, please go to iTunes and leave a rating and review. If you want to check out more on your multifamily journey, go to multifamilyjourney.com where you can get free resources to start your journey and figure out your path. That's multifamilyjourney.com. But more importantly, go take action today towards your financial future. See you next time.